Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 52, Quoth the Barbarian, where we will be looking at Chapters 108 and 109 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of unexpected journeys. Alrighty, you know the drill. Before we begin, each week we'll be examining a section of The Wise Man's Fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply to our real lives. Then we will talk about a phronemos, still not listed in my show notes, never will be again, I bet. <sighs> Such is life. And then we will share a recommended thing of the week and finally wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Dot Books. And spoilers ahead. We're nearing the end of this book. If you didn't know there are spoilers yet, well, maybe you just like the pattering of our voices and haven't been listening to a damn thing we've been saying. I can't blame you. All right, so... We picked Unexpected Journeys. I mean, obviously, it's a Hobbit reference. <laughs> and it really is a detour. Like, Quoth is nominally on his way back to Severin. We've kind of gotten ourselves geared up to, all right, resolution. Nope. No, he's going to go off and have a kung fu adventure. <laughs> I mean, this next section of the book is basically structured after a martial arts movie, loaded with training montages and, you know, all sorts of just random events that don't really necessarily tie directly back into stuff that's going to happen elsewhere. It's a self-contained little adventure that he's going to have here. Essentially, Quoth is going back home the way that I play Skyrim. Oh, side quest? Cool. Let me go do that. Yet another side quest. Okay, cool. I'm on it. <laughs> oh, wait. There's a side quest on the way to go turn in the side quest? I'm going to go do the side quest before I go turn in the side quest. But not before I complete another side quest. Or more accurately, start another side quest. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, we start off with a couple of days left at the Pennysworth Inn. Quoth is telling stories. And somehow, even though we have already got i want to say at least 1600 pages worth of Quoth's story he only has three nights worth of stories to tell that are true maybe that he likes telling maybe but he's told chronicler all of it but i mean yeah some of it's not shining the best light on him but i'm sure he's got more than three days worth of true stories unless um the entirety of the last two books is just full of bullshit. Oh, it almost certainly is. He also takes the time to finish his song about Valorian. He also <laughs> implies quite heavily that he's been enjoying Losi's company. I don't think he implies it. He flat out says it. Oh, no, he just implies that the scratches on his back are acquired during said company you know nothing wrong with that masochist if you're into it you know no kink shaming yeah i'm not sure though that i would enjoy it let's just put it that way then again i'm not into that but what i mean is that i don't necessarily find pain pleasurable yeah at this point like quoth has dealt with a lot of pain in his life so it's not surprising that at a certain point 
some of that might be stuff that he's come to enjoy. I don't know. Anyway, we've got a little bit of a wrap up with how Dan and Hesper are doing. They spend a lot of time in their room together. Go figure. And Martin is flirting with Penny. He's feeling a lot better. And before they run out their welcome, they decide that they're going to go back to Severin. And somehow, after all of everything that has happened and has come to a head, Dedan is at least mostly civil towards Kvoth, and Kvoth is mostly civil towards Dedan. And they have a pleasant few days walking back toward payment, essentially. At this point, there is a great big yellow question mark over Mayor Alvaron's head, which ostensibly means there's a quest reward at the end of this. In theory. But not before Kvothe gets into another side quest. Of course. But also interesting in here is on the journey back to Severin, they encounter a group of troopers where Kvothe gets to have his usual Edema Rue exceptionalism exposed. He is very classist in a really weird way. Yeah, yeah. So these are a bunch of struggling traveling performers. And I guess they had been using bear baiting as one of their primary means of spectacle. Essentially having a bear travel with them. I'm assuming that that bear was quite old and or toothless and or decrepit. Heavily abused. Oh, absolutely heavily abused. Like no circus animal or performing animal, especially in this kind of environment, this kind of world, is treated well. Yeah. But said bear died about a year ago by a dog bite. And now this group is struggling even more. It's three adults and one child, probably about a nine-year-old boy. And everyone else has a filter, except the little boy does not. And so he is our tells Kvothe everything and anything. So one of the things that we get here is Kvothe trading his song about Florian for something nebulous from them. And the little boy is like, I made up a new verse for Tinker Tanner, and it's rather salacious for a nine-year-old. And Quoth is like, okay, well, that's good, but how do you like this? And the little boy's just like, I like mine better. Fair play. <laughs> Absolutely. And Quoth commends the kid for sticking by his verse. And then we get a different version of the lackless rhyme. Seven things stand before the entrance to the lackless door. One of them a ring unworn, one a word that is forsworn, one a time that must be right, one a candle without light, one a son who brings the blood, one a door that holds the flood, one a thing tight held in keeping, then comes that which comes with sleeping. Did I get that right? Then comes that which comes with sleeping. Okay, yeah, okay. <laughs> I did. I did write it down right. Okay, just... It does sound a little bit weird, considering that comes is in there twice. Yes. I assume that... The thing that comes with sleeping is dreaming. But let's just refresh ourselves on the original version that Kvothe is aware of. Sounds good. So what is known as the girl's version, because it was the little girl that taught him this. Seven things has Lady Lackless, keeps them underneath her black dress. One a ring that's not for wearing. One a sharp word not for swearing. Right beside her husband's candle, there's a door without a handle. In a box, no lid or locks. Lackless keeps her husband's rocks. There's a secret she's been keeping. She's been dreaming and not sleeping. On a road that's not for traveling, Lackless likes her riddle raveling. 
This one seems more directly related to Quoth's mother, probably, because of that reference to ravel, raveling. And once again, the boy's version, seven things stand before the entrance to the lackless door, one of them a ring unworn, one a word that is forsworn, one a time that must be right, one a candle without light, one a son who brings the blood, one a door that holds the flood, one a thing tight held in keeping, then comes that which comes with sleeping. This one is not quite as ribald. I agree with that, but also there are some references here that are similar. So one of them is about Lady Lackless, and one of them is Lackless Door. We do have references to rings. We have references to words, a sharp word that is not for swearing, a word that is forsworn. One a time that must be right is not really related to right beside her husband's candle, but we've got one a candle without light. We do have one a son who brings the blood. Could be both. This one reads almost like a prophecy that has been handed down through time with the Lacklaces, whereas the other reads like someone who has taken that prophecy and then made a lewd parody of it. In reference to a specific person in that line. Exactly. So we've got she's been dreaming and not sleeping, which kind of correlates here to then comes that which comes with sleeping. You know, there's references in the girl's version to the lackless box. There is implication that the word box is being used as a metaphor for something like anatomy. There's also husband's rocks, all that stuff. So I agree. I think it's more likely that the boy's version is, if not the original version, closer to it, right? Like it's probably what additional ones are built from. And I agree with you. The girl's version does seem like a lewd parody. Basically, it's the Weird Al version of it. <laughs> I do like that. Now, when Quoth asks about where the boy heard this, he's like, I don't know. Other kids? kids? <laughs> I mean, it makes sense, though. Like, little kids hear things all the time and they repeat things constantly. And they don't actually know what half of them mean. How old were you when you knew what Ring Around the Rosie was about? I was 12. Right. And how old were you when you were actually singing it? Oh, yeah, I was a lot younger. We have children's rhymes about the plague. Yep. <laughs> we have children's rhymes about London Bridge falling down. Yep. Kids repeat rhymes because they sound good. And I think about like all the things that I heard and repeated on the playground and then mom and dad getting very angry when they heard me repeat them. I mean, for goodness sakes, it's not exactly the same. But when I was between eight and 11, something like that, I watched a lot of Night Court. And Night Court has so many sexual jokes. So many. And I'm just like, wow, why was I allowed to watch this? And then you go and watch Animaniacs and there's a fingerprints joke. No, thanks. <laughs> nah. But yeah, kids pick up rhymes like nobody's business. And if it's catchy they'll remember it. And they're not even necessarily going to remember where they heard it from, but they will repeat it. The next thing that I want to mention here actually ties into what we were talking about last time. And I kind of want to point it out specifically because of that. I didn't remember that this had happened in the books, especially right after what I talked about. But 
Foth hands more money than these people have seen in however long since they lost their bear, just gives it to them and says, swore a new bear. I've been through some tight times too, but I'm flush now. I feel like that's kind of a temporary state, especially right now, where you kind of have to enjoy what you have while you have it, because unfortunately, there will be a time where it's just gonna all be gone. And the way that things are going, there's no protection, there's no safety net guaranteed at the end of this road. But while you have the ability to be kind and generous, be kind and generous. It also helps that technically it's not Kvothe's money. <laughs> if we're being... Fair enough. The section, of course, though, ends with Kvothe still being a classist a-hole. Yeah, he's like, oh, I kind of hate bear baiting, but, you know, they're not a Dimaru, so we can't expect them to be any better. <laughs> yeah. So after that little brief interlude, we learn that Kvothe and Tempe have been spending time together learning the Katan and the loot, respectively. And so at a roadside stop at one of their inns, they're outside practicing both the loot on Tempe's side and the Katan on Kvothe's side when Tempe encounters other Adem mercenaries. I would say more that the other Adem mercenaries encounter them, but... Point is, this is the first time outside of Tempe that we've actually seen other Adem. And that Kvothe has. So Kvothe naturally is curious about what's going on. But he's trying to be respectful so he continues cultural appropriation. Yeah, it's awkward. Tempe has a discussion with the other four Adem and... Kvothe can see that the conversation tense and probably knows in his heart of hearts that he should back off and not approach and not bother them. What does he do? No. Mm -mm. He goes in and tries to see what's going on and gets put in his place. He goes to say, hey, friend, let's include me in this conversation and holds his own for like 30 microseconds <laughs> and essentially is physically rebuffed easily by one of the mercenaries who he originally assumes is male, only to realize, oh, wait, I'm a sexist a-hole. And, oh, look, how did I miss that? Boops. <laughs> I mean, she basically swats him away that you would just an annoying fly. It's like, please leave, go away. So he does. And then he continues to do the K-Tan in front of them and... <laughs> Continues to just get Tempe in more and more trouble. Yeah. So then after that encounter, Tempe and Kvothe have a moment where Kvothe learns that he's gotten Tempe into trouble. He has convinced Tempe to do things that are taboo, namely teaching another without permission to teach another about the Lothani and the Katan. And to make matters worse, Kvothe is a barbarian. And through all this, Tempe reveals that he has to go back to Heret, his hometown, to face the judgment of his teacher, Shein. We get a revisit to the conversation with the Cathay. You laughed at fairies until you saw one. Small wonder all your civilized neighbors dismissed the Chandrian as well. You'd have to leave your precious corners far behind before you found someone who might take you seriously. You wouldn't have a hope until you made it to the Stormwall. The Stormwall behind which is Hert. I think Kvothe does have two motives. One, I think he does genuinely feel some responsibility for Tempe's predicament. 
And he does confirm with Tempe that his going with him would help. I, I think that's smart of him to ask and not to just assume. In this case, going to Herod and proving that he is of the Lathani would help Tempe because otherwise Tempe will be cut away from the Adem. And it's more than just saying you can't come back. It's basically being told you're no longer part of your people, part of your heritage. And that's that's a lot. So there are some real stakes here for Tempe, and we'll get into that in the next chapter. So what's the other warring impulse? The other impulse is not so much a warring impulse, but a parallel one. The other one is to see if perhaps the Adem might be able to tell him more about the Chandrian. I mean, we know that that's been one of Foth's great curiosities and driving impetuses throughout his life, pretty much ever since that fateful day when his parents were killed. That said, he also does have, I think, a kind and noble impulse to be there for his friend and help speak in his friend's defense. With that, let's move into chapter 109, Barbarians and Madmen. Training montage. Yeah, this, this is basically a training montage. And I mean, we don't necessarily need to go into the full daily blow by blow, but let's start off here with the way things go when they depart. So Quoth leaves Daydan with a letter to take to Alvaron, but not the purse. I think that's a smart choice because I believe Daydan would drink and piss it away. I mean, it's not like Quoth hasn't been dipping into the kitty himself, so... Here, have a bear. Right. Also, he is both hopeful, sad, and trying to be realistic about his chances of seeing Denna again in Severn when he goes back, and settles on, well, she's probably not there anyway. The Cathay said she's not there, and Valorian says the Cathay doesn't lie, so she's obviously not there any longer. I mean, all of these are reasonable assumptions, Let's put it this way. If Quoth's only reason to go back to Severn was to see Denna, that probably wouldn't have been a wise decision in the first place. So here we get a little bit more of the flavor around Tempe's predicament. In Adem culture, it's considered abnormal and against custom to take a student without permission from your instructor because absolutely they don't want a situation where someone who is not qualified to teach takes on a student. And then it goes beyond that if said student is an outsider. Like, who are you teaching our ways to and how badly are you butchering it? This is seen as a breach of trust with Tempe's teacher and his people. Remember that the Adem hold their culture very close and they hold their combat philosophy as a very closely guarded secret it is very powerful, and with that power, of course, comes great responsibility. Must also come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not the point. I was trying to parallel it, not quote it. But everyone quotes it wrong. But I wasn't quoting it, so that's neither here nor there. <laughs> I love this bit here. When Tempe says he will face Shayan's judgment, he says it's not so much a trial as a questioning. Shane will ask him why Tempe has taken this course of action, and Tempe will answer, I saw in Quoth Goodiron waiting, he is of Lithani, he needs Lithani to guide him. And then Shane will judge Quoth to see if this assessment is true. Is Tempe judging Quoth's character accurately? 
And if Shan assesses that Kvoth is unworthy, Tempe will be exiled from Ademre forever. So that means that, yeah, if Kvoth didn't show up, Tempe would be absolutely screwed because there would be no way to actually judge his quality. And yeah, not good. Now Kvoth is going to be scrutinized and it won't just be his skills, but there is an element of his own moral fiber that will be evaluated here. The way that Tempe talks about being cut away, it becomes clear to Kvoth that it is a worse punishment than death that death would be kinder. I think part of it is that Tempe, the person that we know here, exists as fundamentally someone who is of the Adem, of the Lithani, a practitioner of the K-10. All of these things are core to who this Tempe is. And were he to be cut away, were he to be exiled, he would no longer be any of those things, and that Tempe would be dead. All that would be left would be someone that shares that name, but can no longer use those as parts of his identity. You know, this is fundamentally a different person and not a person that Tempe wants to be. It'd be different if Tempe didn't want to be part of the ADEM, if Tempe wanted to live his own life in a different way, but that's not what he wants. That's not how he views himself. It's not how he wants to view himself. And so it's another kind of death as far as Tempe's concerned. So with that, Tempe realizes, yeah, we're going to have to give you a crash course in all of this. I want to make sure that you are as ready as you can be to face Shan's judgment. I'm not saying I can make you an expert. I'm not saying I can make you understand everything, but I can at least give you the understanding so that you can understand the context that you're going to be entering into. And that you can understand what you don't understand. Tempe goes on to try to break both. I mean, he basically does. So they go through this cycle where first they run for an hour, which that's a long time to run. As a person who truly dislikes running. Then they practice the Katan. Then they walk for a mile. Then they spend a little bit of quiet discussion of the Lathani and then repeat. And over and over and over and over. It takes three days to destroy Quoth to the point of collapsing. This is pretty brutal. Like, they're actually covering quite a bit of ground, too. I mean, it's not like they're sprinting, but like if you're running, you're probably going five or six miles an hour. Ah, uh, depends on how quickly you run. And I'm sure that it got slower over the course of those three days. But this doesn't really interest me that much. The thing that interests me is that at the point of exhaustion, Quoth is able to give Tempe answers about the Lothani better and more quickly and more to Tempe's liking than he was when he was fresh, when he had the time to think, when he tried to guess what Tempe wanted out of him. So the thing that we kind of get from this cycle, from this montage, is the Lothani is not a path, but a means for choosing a path. And it's not really a code of actions so much as it is a way to help identify the right action in uncertain circumstances. It's not a deontological set of commandments that are always true at all times but rather a set of principles that help guide decision-making in split seconds. It is fundamentally designed 
for dealing with uncertainty and dealing with combat situations that require split-second committed decisions, and it requires earnestness. The sorts of answers that Tempe values are ones where Quoth isn't trying to get the right answer, but is actually just saying what he thinks. Not even what he thinks. He is bypassing thinking. Right. It's just a gut reaction and trusting that gut. And the work that they're doing with the K-Tan, with all of these discussions, all of the running, the physical training, is helping to develop and hone those instincts so that Quoth can just rely on those in that instant. Because if we think of any sort of conversation, he wants to converse as if it's a fight and vice versa, which is to say, you will not have time to consider every possible course of action. You will only be able to just see what is in front of you and make a choice and commit to it. And you will make that decision based on the way you feel best about doing, acting as best you know how, and just not thinking about it, but doing. And it is acting with complete and utter conviction in that sense. There's no room for half measures. There's no room for wishy-washiness. There's no room for waffling or taking your time to really consider everything. You are presented with a choice and you have to act as quickly as possible. And that is the same way that they have to converse when they're talking about the Lithani. Specifically about the Lithani and nothing else. The Lithani is about those split-second earnest decisions. It's earnestness and conviction that they value, not consideration. It doesn't come from your head or your heart, but your gut. It's about listening to your feelings and speaking as earnestly as possible. All of this flies in the face of everything that Kvothe has had to deal with at the university, in academia, where everything is about training your mind to do exactly what you tell it to do. It's a really good contrast. One of the best parts of what happens to Kvothe is also worrying to Tempe. Kvothe stops realizing what language he's speaking. He's not doing the thing where he's like translating through his native language. He's just speaking. And he thinks he's speaking a Turin. And he most definitely is not. And at first he's like, that means I'm good at this, right? <laughs> and Tempe goes, you speak good for a child. <laughs> You're... You are using very simple sentence construction. You are making yourself understood, but not elegantly. And Quoth immediately thinks, but then I need a bigger vocabulary, right? And Tempe says, no, actually, it's not about knowing all the words. It's knowing when to use them and how to use them. You don't need to have a massive vocabulary to write well. And in fact, I have a wonderful story about this. Back in college, I was assigned a number of essays where I had word limits. And at first you're thinking, but to explain myself, I need to use all of them. And no, you need to use them well. You need to use your allotment well, which is great that I have an editor literally sitting across from me right now who edited my papers for me and helped me shorten some of the sections, made it so that it was clearer. Yay. Enter the next year. I am a TA for said teacher who assigns these essays to the freshmen in the game design department. And I've made friends with one of the new freshmen who is like trying to game the rubric. And he was insistent that if he explained himself well and went over 
the word limit, this is making Will rage already, that he would just lose a few points in the word limit thing, but he would gain a lot of points in the other parts of this. And I'm just sitting there sighing and trying to explain that I do not want to read anything that goes that far above because he's like, once you hit the word limit, it doesn't matter how many more words you put in. You've already lost those points. You mean that that section is only supposed to be 700 words. What if I write 15,000? And I looked at him, I'm like, I will not read that. The teacher will not read that. Anyone else grading this will not read that. You are being rude. Yeah. One of the things that in my career, you know, I've had to make a living with my writing. One of the things that I've learned is that in a professional setting, almost never has the feedback been, this would be great if it were longer. Like it's always, does this clearly and accurately say what needs to be said in such a way that people come away with it with a better understanding than when they started? And usually the longer you get, the more opportunities for people to screw that up there will be. And expanding doesn't make it good. No. You can feel like, oh, I have really gone into depth onto this subject. And I think that the people who need to know will be better educated for it. No, that is not true. Most of the time, the people are going to be reading this on their mobile devices or in an email in between 50 million other things. And they are not going to be in a situation where they want to have to devote deep thought to figuring out what's going on. So brevity works. Direct sentence construction works. And all of those things that you think are helping your case probably aren't. It doesn't matter what kind of flourishes you put on it. It doesn't matter any of that stuff. You want simple and direct. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. But what I did take away from this is, so Foth has this bit where he says, well, if I see a woman and I think that she's beautiful, do I just say that you're beautiful? And Tempe says, no, you'll just say beautiful and you will let her figure out what needs to be there. To a point, I'm okay with this. I also, though, like directness. I know. I'm getting, though, to the part that I think is actually really meaningful here. So after this little conversation, Tempe just says, proud. He's saying to Kvothe, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of the work that you're doing. I'm proud of how seriously you're taking this. I'm proud of you for doing all of this physical training without complaint. You ran up to your limits and maybe a little overboard. I'm proud of you for trying that hard. I'm glad I caught you. You're fine. Let's get you some water. Let's get a little rest and then we'll get back to it. You have a long way to go, but I'm proud of you for taking this journey. He also says, I'm proud of you for the fact that you went along with me without complaint for so long. But part of understanding the Lothani is also understanding your limits. Absolutely. <laughs> I love that Quoth's whip fast responses, unless falling down is above the Lothani, which is just this sort of unthinking response in that. And then Tempe's like, you get it. <laughs> There's references here after to how this kind of delirium state that Tempe is inducing in Kvothe is similar but not similar to the Heart of Stone. 
So he calls this one the spinning leaf. The heart of stone is all about control and the spinning leaf is all about loss of control, letting go of control. It's also calling to mind all of those times like the court of the wind where Quoth watches the leaves blowing through the court and it's kind of mesmerizing. The questioning hall, yes? Yeah, where he is letting go of trying to explain everything, where he's letting go of trying to control everything, where he is just acting. This is what Elodin has been trying to get him to do. I think Tempe's a better teacher than Elodin. Agree. In fact, we'll get into this when we talk about Phronemos, but Tempe has been, I think, the best instructor that Quoth has had since Ben. The next thing that happens is Tempe adds a new element to their training, fighting. And he asks, why did you smile as we fought today? Because I was happy. Did you enjoy the fighting? Yes. And Tempe is not happy with this reaction because fighting, the act of fighting should not bring satisfaction or joy. It is a necessary evil. You should be proud of following the Lathani, but should not be happy that you are fighting. Only barbarians and madmen take pleasure in combat. Yes, in this case, he is not encouraging both to become a pacifist or anything, but he is saying that sometimes you'll have to fight and the Lathani is about knowing when that will be. You should take pride in doing a thing well. Whoever loves the fight itself has left the Lathani behind. This is, I think, again, the key. Like, it's tough, right? When you think about the role that combat takes in so much of our recreation, whether it is in video games or movies. LARPing. LARPing. And then even in sports, I mean, you have combat sports like MMA or fencing or boxing, wrestling, all of that stuff. And then also things like American football. I mean, football, eh, soccer. Proper football also has its share of fighting and violence. Hockey. Yep. Like there's an element of violence involved in all of these. And yeah, some of it's fun. Like there is nothing like seeing a crunching slide tackle coming in and just absolutely bowling a guy over. Yeah, it's kind of fun. There are people who go to hockey to watch the fights and then a hockey game breaks out. And I think when you're zoomed back and you're just kind of looking at this stuff recreationally, it's one thing. I think it's something completely different when you're saying, yes, getting into a serious and deadly conflict with another human being is something that I enjoy. Mm -hmm. That is something that's very different. And I think oftentimes it is very easy to conflate the two. I'm not going to get into a big screed about violence in entertainment media, but it can be an easy mistake to make. But knowing that combat is a thing that can happen and that it can be a necessity sometimes means that you have to embrace that necessity and live with it and live with the ambiguity that comes from it. The response should be duty and sorrow, not joy. So on the 11th day, while Kvoth is practicing the Ketan, Tempe adds sword combat to this, which Kvoth has really underestimated just how heavy a sword can be. <laughs> right now, just Hold your arm out and hold it for as long as you can before all of that lactic acid just starts making your muscles say, why are you doing this? Okay, what? No, no. How about no? And then hold a sword, a hunk of metal that extends where the center of gravity is out past your hand. 
yep, nope. Mm -mm. And keep in mind, these aren't like fencing competition blades, which are incredibly lightweight and thin. Even a rapier from you know the 17 and 1800s was still a fairly heavy piece of metal compared to nothing. You know, because these are meant for actual combat, they're meant to hold an edge, they're meant to also withstand heavy swings from opposing opponents. They're not designed for competition. They're designed for combat. So it's not like Quoth is dealing with just a little thin needle fine point. This is a, a sizable chunk of metal. It's heavy. He's going to have to learn how to swing it without hurting himself. He has to learn how to wield it with intention the way he does everything else. So Quoth says that they spend 15 hours a day doing these training exercises. So that is the running, the katan, the walking, the talking, and then back to it. And fighting. Yeah. Each one of these cycles takes about two and a half hours. They're going through multiple cycles each day. And Quoth can start to feel his body responding to this. Each successive day, it becomes a little easier. Each day, he's getting a little bit quicker, both in mind and body, the way he responds and the way he understands things. And each day, they get a little bit closer to judgment, to Herit. And with that, it's time to talk about the Fernemos. Thank you. So it's my turn this week. And yeah, there wasn't really much choice but Tempe. You know, here he's teaching Quoth to let go of his waking mind and let his sleeping mind take over decision making. He's learning to trust that, to trust his gut, to trust his instincts, to act on his instincts without spending a whole lot of extra time thinking. He's doing. He teaches Kvothe the importance of speaking earnestly with less concern for appearing thoughtful. So he's teaching Kvothe that when it comes to the Lithani, you speak the answer that comes from your gut, your essence, your core. And you're speaking the thing that is true to you, not the thing that you think the other person wants to hear. And this training of mind and body helps Quoth to achieve his spinning leaf mindset, where he's able to let go of the iron grip he's tried to keep his mind in for all these years. If we think about everything that we've seen with Quoth pretty much since his time in Tarbian onward, he's been in this constant state of trying to force his mind to do exactly what he wants it to do. And spinning leaf is the exact opposite. It is allowing his mind to do what it needs to do and what it wants to do and harnessing that as opposed to try and rein it in and control it rigidly. He is sailing, not driving. And so the other thing that we see here is that Tempe takes responsibility for his mistakes. He says, you know, I made a mistake in so cavalierly just training you, but I have to own that mistake now and I have to accept the consequences of it. He doesn't force Quoth to go with him to Demre. He gives Quoth the choice. He doesn't even ask, though. Quoth asks. I think part of that is if Quoth wasn't able to recognize that he needed to go to Ademre based on everything that Tempe has told him and taught him, if Quoth didn't recognize that, then Tempe would deserve to be exiled. Right, because Quoth being of the Lothani would think of it on his own. And it proves the point that Tempe is trying to make about Quoth's worthiness. Right. 
Tempe fundamentally does believe that Quoth is worthy. He does believe that Quoth has this great potential in him and that he is worth training. Tempe believes this earnestly and he has given Quoth the opportunity to arrive at these conclusions himself. And so when Quoth unprompted says, would it help if I go with you? Tempe says, it could. <laughs> But he knows that this was the right decision. This is a confirmation. And then throughout all of this, he does a really good job of balancing the sense that, yes, Quoth has room to improve. Quoth hasn't mastered everything. He says, you still have a lot to learn. And at the same time, he says, I'm proud of you. I am glad that you are doing this. You are making progress. You have a long way to go, but you are taking a journey of your own choosing that is difficult, and you've done so without complaint. I am delighted to have you as my student. This is the sort of stuff that Quoth has really needed to hear for all of these years, and he hasn't gotten that at the university. Like if you think about at the university, he's always been in large classroom settings, and he's been just sitting here trying to please these distant masters who have to deal with the board, and they have to deal with grading, and they have to deal with you know, school administration, and they have to deal with all of the politics that come along with that, and with rule compliance, and all of these things that stand in the way of actually nurturing their students' growth. Elodin, for all of his brilliance, is a terrible teacher. He speaks in oblique riddles, he does a terrible job at setting expectations, and he doesn't really do a good job of actually training his students. The students who do the best are doing stuff outside of anything Elodin is teaching them. Like Fella learning the name of Iron happened because of Fella's own work outside of Elodin. It happened in spite of Elodin, not because of him. Mm -hmm. Elodin is someone who is a prodigy at naming, but that doesn't make him a good teacher. Tempe is the opposite. He admits himself that he is a middling fighter by the ADEM standards. He blows everybody else out of the water that Quoth has encountered at this point. But Tempe is the first to acknowledge, I'm only okay at this. And by ADEM standards, I'm maybe even below average. But that doesn't mean that his instruction hasn't really helped Quoth in meaningful ways that, you know, if Tempe were this genius at fighting, Quoth might not have been able to learn from it because it's really hard to teach someone to do something that comes natural to you. It's really hard to teach someone a skill that you don't have to work at, that you've never had to really work to develop because you don't understand what it's like to be bad at it. Yes, actually, I'm going through that right now and we'll get to it more as we go along once I get into my recommended things. Awesome. So I think Tempe is the kind of teacher that Quoth needs. He responds to him with grace and also holds him accountable. Tempe gives Quoth encouragement while also letting him know that he hasn't reached the end of the journey yet. And while this was a journey that Quoth didn't expect that he would be taking, he jumped to it without complaint and with curiosity and wisdom. So that's why Tempe's are for Nemos today. Very good choice. So with that, let's go to our thing of the week. I believe it's your turn. 
I believe you are correct, sir, as I have already alluded to. All right. My thing of the week is, I'm not sure if it would be considered a website, a service, a whatnot, but it's Trello. What would you call that? It's an application. Okay. If you're familiar with Jira, it's very similar. It's almost like personal Jira. And I say this with all the love in my heart for it because you and I have embarked on a very in-depth project in our house, namely making our bedroom the bedroom of our dreams. We together, if I look through pictures of our previous bedrooms, have kind of neglected our shared space our shared sleeping space, our shared relaxation space, our shared dedicated no TV space, our shared dedicated restful space in every place that we've lived. There's a bed. Cool. Are there side tables? Maybe. Is there a pile of clothes in the corner? Oh, almost certainly. <laughs> right. And it doesn't wind up being truly restful. It's just a place we sleep. We decided with our house to do something different. Our first two projects really were getting your room that is your office and the guest room ostensibly into a state that is truly for you, restful for you, a loving space that feels like a gigantic hug to be in. And we did the same for my room, which is where we record. And we made sure that the things that were here were recharging to our respective mental states. We finally have the ability right now to work on our room. And a lot of it is construction and talking about it is really hard to teach someone something that comes naturally to you. I'm the more handy of the two of us. Yay, subverting gender roles. But I have more skills and more knowledge about how to use a miter saw and how to safely use a nail gun and how to put flooring in and not get frustrated. Or I have an understanding based on other things that I have done that will lead me to be able to do something much more easily. The reason that I chose Trello though is because both of us, you especially have ADHD, but both of us have the thing where you hyperfixate and you might not finish it. You start off strong and then the last week's worth of stuff takes you like four months. And I refuse, because right now our bed has to be in the living room, I refuse to keep sleeping in the living room long term. And Trello allows me to put very broken down bits of the project in lists that have items that are movable. And so if something happens like a couple days ago, I destroyed my hand doing some cutting by hand with a box knife. And it took me out of commission to be able to do some of the other things that were dependents on the next bits. I was able to extend our time frame without killing our momentum. I was able to put the things that we needed to get done in the next couple of days and kind of just get an idea of how long things would take. I'm also able to look at that list and go, is that too much for one day? Realistically speaking, I can label things and say, this will take less than an hour. I can label things and say, this will take a half a day. It's so useful and helpful to have those little broken down tasks, those little bits that are movable. It is very helpful and it keeps us on track. Yeah. 
Well, and the other thing that's really helpful about it is, so Trello, of course, draws a lot of inspiration from agile methodology. And a large part of that is getting out of the waterfall world where you are constantly trying to do everything in a perfect sequence. This follows, this follows, this. It is recognizing that there are things that you can do out of order or in parallel that you don't have to wait for all of these things to happen. And using that, to get more done. So in those situations where your hand is out of commission, there are other tasks that we can move in for the day that'll still need to get done sooner or later. We can do those now instead of trying to wait for your hand to recover so that you can do the one thing that we think that we have to do today, but there are other things that we can do that are still beneficial, that are still gonna give your hand the time it needs to recover and we will still have made progress. Also, a thing that we did is made a completed list where we don't just delete the thing that we got done, we put it in completed so that we can see all of the things we've accomplished. Visual progress is really helpful and it also lets you see at a glance what's left, how much you've gotten done, and then you can relax knowing that, yeah, we did that. And then if there's ever a question of, did I remember to do that? You can always check and see, oh yes, there it is. It's already been checked off. It's there, it's been done. It feels so good to have that list of completed tasks growing because you can go in and look at the room and go, it doesn't look like I did a whole lot. And then you realize it doesn't look like I did a whole lot because what I did took skill and time. And to me, it might not look like a lot of progress because I was so myopic so into it, so directly on it. But we had carpet in that room a week and a half ago. Also, the walls were just a plain grayish beige. And now they're not. They're dark blue with a backing ready for board and batten to be installed, which is the next thing we're doing is the trim. And I'm excited because I get to use a miter saw that we borrowed from a friend. And if you want to see progress shots, they are up on our Discord. Indeed. Well, with that, let's move into our seven words. All right. Yeah, you had words from the book this time. What'd you pick? All righty. There are a lot of options. None of them like my favorite. And so what I chose is I've been through some tough times too because it was so personal to me. Yeah, it's that reaction of empathy and gratitude. Quoth isn't spending a lot of time feeling guilty about his current financial success, but he's also not blind to the plight of others. I think what's really important here is that, that there are a couple of branches that you can take on this path after you gain some form of stability. One is to say, well, I got mine by hard work and sacrifice. So everyone should have to work hard and sacrifice. And if they work hard in the same way that I worked hard and sacrificed in the same way that I sacrificed, they will get the same result. Not true. The other one is, okay, I'm going to help them so that they don't have to do the stuff that is painful and hard and might have a negative outcome anyway. Another way to look at it is I hit a couple lucky breaks that allowed me to make choices about the kinds of hard work and sacrifice that I would be able to make that allowed me to achieve success. And yes, I still had to do a lot of difficult things. I still had to work hard. But if it weren't for those breaks that went my way, I wouldn't be in a position to make those choices because 
Not all hard work is going to be equally rewarding. Not all sacrifices are going to get you what you really need. Sometimes the sacrifices are just things that you lose and you don't get anything beneficial out of them. And you're not always in a position to choose which of those things you're going to devote your time and effort to. So if we can provide a lucky break to somebody. Yeah, if that little bit of generosity gives someone the space to find something of use, great. If making that introduction that helps someone find a new job helps, great. Like We're not trying to say that hard work doesn't matter, but I would say that so much of it does come down to the accidents of circumstance, you know, and those give us the options to choose what kind of work we devote ourselves to, what kind of sacrifices we make. Again, though, if you look at your options and take the selfish route or take the selfless route, taking that selfless route, especially if it's not a hardship on you, because again, Kvothe gave away the mayor's money. <laughs> he didn't do anything to hurt himself. I say do your best to ease somebody else's way. Yeah. I had seven words from life. And so mine are, thank you for reining that impulse in. So in relation to our house project, I had a week off from work where I was able to devote to the project. And, you know, that was good. We made a lot of progress that way. But now that I have to go back to work and my day-to-day -day job, I don't have as much time to put into helping out with all of this. And so most of my assistance comes after I get done with eight plus hours of work each day. <laughs> So as a result, you know, my contributions are a little more limited at this point. And you've been picking up a lot of the extra slack on this. And even as I know that you really want to make sure that you can accomplish the things that you set out to do, and you want to make sure that we get this done, there is always that issue of we all have limits in terms of what we can accomplish in any given day based on what our bodies will allow, what our minds will allow, just what our materials will allow. And I know you in particular oftentimes have a really hard time accepting when it is time to take a step back. And what I've been really proud of seeing is you recognizing when you are hitting that limit, because we both know that there is a point of diminishing returns, where if you try and do more, you'll do more work, but it won't be better work. And too much farther past that, you'll do work that is so much worse that you'll have to go back and do more to fix it. And as much as you may want to go and get all of this done, you're not actually advancing the goal. And knowing that our goal here is not just to get our room done, but to get it done in a way that we both love and so that we love the outcome of it, recognizing when we hit that limit has been really important. And it can be tough, you know, especially in a capitalist society where it's very easy to view time spent on something as good. Right. Quantity versus quality. It can be very easy to fall into that trap. You spend X amount of hours on this. And then the question is, how many of those hours were actually beneficial? Like I look at when I was in school, there's always that temptation to pull an all nighter. A thing that I maybe did once while I was in college. It wasn't better. No, I remember having to talk you down off the all-nighter <laughs> a few times. 
You did. There were a couple of times where a midnight turn-in was a requirement thing and I needed to use all of my minutes. And you're like, okay, I can get behind this, but go to bed right after. Right. Like It's one thing to stay up to midnight. An all-nighter, though, is where you're like, okay, I'm going to stay up until 6 a.m. And then go to school. Right. No. Yeah. I, I agree with you. Like I said, I think maybe I did one of those. There were a couple of times where I had to calm myself down from midnight till two and I played video games. Yeah, that's different though. And it's that impulse to say, well, I'm not done yet, so I have to keep doing this. I have to keep doing this. And the answer is, I'm just going to tell you, friends, you really don't. In fact, actually, if you think that you want to pull an all-nighter, it is better to go to sleep at a semi-reasonable time and wake up stupid early and continue working. Yeah, you will do better at it, especially if it's something that involves writing or... Reason. Like, give yourself that time off. Or if you can easily screw it up, like, if it's a physical object that you need to prepare, it is better to do it fresh. But I think I also remember exactly why you said thank you for reining that impulse in. Because I wanted to work on the room. I wanted to work on doing the trim so badly on Thursday and Friday. And my hand hurt. And I was like, I'm going to do the things that I can do without having to. And then I halfway through, I said, I'm going to take a muscle relaxer and go to sleep. And you're like, good choice. <laughs> exactly. Because... I wanted you to put yourself in a position to succeed. And while I'm not going to say that like my hand is perfect right now, I'm not going to be doing any work that requires me to grip a box cutter like at all <laughs> until my pain is completely gone. Also, I'm going to ask your help to do some painting so that I don't have to death grip on a paint roller. Some of those things that are going to make it a lot better for my hand. I also went about getting compression gloves and some other things just to make sure that I'm taking care of myself above the, I need to get this done. Absolutely. Well, with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we take a break from the wise man's fear to spend a few episodes discussing Bast's story and the lightning tree, which Patrick Rothfuss will be expanding into the narrow road between desires later this year. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and what is left of social media stuff, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Side effect to it actually suddenly getting cold? Runny nose. But at least it's cold and not a hundred and whatever degrees now. Oh, it feels so nice to have temperatures below 80.